This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Welcome to the Asia Briefing. I'm your host, Tom Starrick, coming to you from the Hong Kong headquarters of the South China Morning Post. Here's a quick introduction to the Asia Briefing. We're going to be taking you behind the headlines, discussing some of the biggest, most impactful stories from around Asia and around the world. Drawing on the best work from our team of editors, writers and video producers here in Hong Kong, but also from our crew of contributors across the region. We're going to start in the city that became Asia's front line in the war against Islamic militancy. Marawi was once a thriving, multi-religious, ethnically diverse city, but it's since been reduced to ruins. One of our senior video producers was recently there to document the struggle to rebuild, while also bearing witness to the harrowing stories of those trying to rebuild their lives. Then we'll hear a story that touches on the very sensitive issues of race and gender, but is also intertwined in the complex cultural history of the Philippines. One of our journalists, Crystal Tai, has been examining the controversy surrounding the winner of the Miss Universe pageant, Katrina Gray, a woman criticised by some for being not Filipino enough. And we'll also hear about Maria Reza, a publisher and journalist who has featured as one of Time Magazine's People of the Year, and who more recently presided over the famous New Year's Eve countdown in New York City. Maria Reza has fearlessly confronted both the power of Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte, as well as the power of Facebook and Big Tech, and she's been targeted as a result. Now I'm going to take you to Marawi, the Philippine city which has been left broken and uninhabitable after a prolonged fight between the Philippine military and militants affiliated with Islamic State. Our supervising video producer, Chu Lu, recently visited Marawi and shot a series of short documentary films. Chu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. What was Marawi like before this situation occurred? Marawi is known as the historic Islamic city of Marawi in the Philippines. The majority of the population who live there are Maranaos, who are uh, an ethnicity who are predominantly Muslim. Uh, From what we learned about the city, from the people who lived there, uh, before the violence happened, people lived in harmony. Christians lived side by side with the Muslims. Everyone knew each other. Everyone helped each other out. Uh, As one woman told us, the problem of one was the problem of everyone. So it was a, a very harmonious society. And so what happened in, in, in May 2017? How did this, how did this uh, fairly harmonious society uh, become riven? The, the, the militants who targeted it were not, well, there were a mixture of locals and people who had come from, from other parts of Southeast Asia. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, so there is a family in Marawi called the Maute family, who are a very wealthy, uh, influential family. Two of their sons uh, had become radicalized uh, before 2012. In 2012, they founded um, a group which they called the Maute Group after their family name. And uh, from what we know, uh, this group was financed by the mother of the family who owns a construction company um, and several properties in Marawi as well as in Manila. They're very influential and had ties to local politicians in the area as well. So the mother seemed to be the financier of this group's activities. Uh, This group before 2017 had been... uh, 
responsible for several attacks uh, in the Philippines. They are associated with the Davao bombing in 2016, which killed 14 people and injured 70 others. Um, They first clashed with uh, the Philippines Army back in 2013 when they attacked a security checkpoint. So they were known to authorities. In the spring of 2015, the Mauche group pledged allegiance to the Islamic State. And uh, they, and along with another militant group called Ansar Khalifa Philippines, uh, they vowed to protect each other. And uh, by establishing these links, they wanted to establish the first caliphate for ISIS in Asia. So all of a sudden, there were a thousand militants in the city of Marawi fighting back against the Philippine security forces. They were not expecting this. And in a matter of hours, Marawi became a war zone. It was the sort of urban warfare that they were waging that the military was not prepared for. And they they didn't have the equipment for it either. So the reason why Marawi got completely destroyed was because the Philippines military responded with airstrikes. Hours after the fighting started, people fled the city. So after five months, the Philippines military and the government declared the city liberated. They said, look, in the Middle East, ISIS has occupied some of the cities there for years at a time. We were able to clear Marawi of them in five months. This brings us to your visit when you visited uh, Marawi toward the end of last year. And you made a film with some of these, these sweeping vistas that show this whole cityscape. And it's described in your film as being a devastated city frozen in time. And it just, it really does look like one big blast zone. What you imagine uh, cities in World War II might have looked like after the Blitz. I'm just wondering if you could maybe describe your impressions of it. What, what, what did you see there when you visited and captured the, these images? As I was walking down those streets in Marawi, it was really hard for me to imagine that just 18 months ago, that was a functioning city. Nobody lives there anymore. They can't. There's no infrastructure. Everything is bombed out. The facades of buildings are gone. Uh, a lot of buildings collapsed. Uh, the ones that are still standing are insecure because they could collapse at any time. Uh, there is debris all over. They've cleared the roads, but uh, when you get into people's houses, there's debris all over the floor. There's broken glass. Um, one of the things the military has been working to do is defuse unexploded bombs. And also, uh, because it's been almost two years now since the fighting ended, nature has overtaken. So you see vines and bushes and grass just growing all over people's former houses. It's really hard to imagine that people were actually living here less than two years ago. There's one woman in your film who had gone back to her house and and all that she could salvage was one white plastic chair, which she she took with her and, and now has in her her temporary shelter where she's living with her family. Tell us about the experiences of these people. So her name was Sarah Lynn. She was, I believe she was 27 years old. Uh, She and her husband lived in Marawi with their three daughters. And she described life as being, uh, they were really happy. You know, they owned their own home. She had a small clothing shop uh, that sold women's clothes. Her husband sold vegetables. They weren't rich by any means but they made enough to support themselves and they owned a home, which is very important for them. The conflict left them with nothing. Their home was completely destroyed. So last spring, the government started allowing families in the most affected area, which is what they call the area that was completely bombed out. They were allowed to go back to their homes uh, to salvage what was left, to see what was left. So she went back to her home and she said everything was gone. 
the only thing she was able to find was a plastic white chair. And she brought it back with her to the temporary shelter. She said, that's the only thing I have now that reminds me of our home. Life in the temporary shelter, she says, is really difficult. They live in maybe a 14-square-meter flat. It's sturdy. It has a door that locks. Uh, but she says, sometimes there's no water. Something about these temporary shelters is that they're built by the government, but they're not run by a UN agency. So there's no food relief. There's no assistance. Uh, these people need to go out and get jobs and earn money and support themselves. And the government has given them a home to stay in uh, while they clean up the most affected area. And then eventually these people will, will be able to go back and rebuild their homes. But Sarah Lynn's husband is deaf. So he can't find steady work. Sarah Lynn is pregnant with their fourth child, so she's not in the condition to work. She says it's really frustrating to wake up in the morning and have no food on the table. And in fact, we've now got some audio from your film. We're going to hear from Sarah Lynn in her own words. Living here is really difficult. Sometimes we just eat rice with salt. There are times that we don't have water. There is no more relief. Everything is gone. We have no livelihood. I think about how we used to live and what we have now. We had a house, our own house, our own lot. But now it's as if we have nothing. All of us have no money, no livelihood. Yeah, I think that uh, really sets up the third case study in, in the film that you made. A, a young officer in the Philippine Army, uh, I think his name was Captain Ron Villarosa, who's a young guy, he must have been in his late 20s or maybe maybe mid-30s even, uh, who's in the Philippine army working on the, the reconstruction effort to try and rebuild Marawi, to try and make it, uh, at least parts of it, inhabitable enough for some of the families to return. He came across as, as very sincere and, and, and well-meaning in your coverage, but it must be a, an endless job for for these guys in the forces to try and to try and make sure that that militant ideology doesn't regain any of its appeal. It is. And, you know, to understand why this happened to begin with, why did people join the militants? It's because of poverty. Lanao Sur, which is where Marawi is, is one of the poorest provinces in the Philippines. Captain Villarosa has spent the majority of his career on the southern island of Basilan dealing with armed militant groups. So it's the Abu Sayyaf, it's... Um, other militant groups as well that are based in the area. And from the people that he's spoken to, from fighters that the army has captured, uh, they've all said, we didn't join the cause because we believe in this ideology. We joined to survive because the armed groups help us feed our people. They have the funding to allow me to feed my family. Ultimately, that is why these people are joining the militants. And we met one family where 19 people sleep in a 12-square-meter tent. They got a second tent a couple of months ago. Before that, 27 people slept in one tent. You can imagine what life is like for them. They just want to go home. But because they're not going to be able to return home to start rebuilding for 18 months to two years and actually start, not start living there for another five, it could be an opportunity for these militant groups to target them and, and their frustrations and saying, hey, we can help you where the government can't. 
we might in fact now just listen to some of the audio you recorded while you were speaking to Captain Villarosa during your visit to Marawi. What we found out in, in Basilan is that the people out there, those who surrendered to the government, are not really fighting for an ideology. They're actually just fighting to survive. And by doing fighting to survive, they are attaching themselves to their leaders. And those leaders, in return, attach themselves to the ideology because they need the ideology to fund them. And that funding, in return, provides for his people. So really, those people in Basilan, especially those who surrender, they're not really fighting for the ideology. Most of us will be misled that they are fighting for a, an Islamic cause. Well, what the average Christian knows about his religion is what the average Abu Sayyaf surrendery knows about Islam. He's no jihadist. He's not fighting for a really, really deep cause for his religion. He's just fighting for his survival. So, Chu, you, you, you touched on it uh, earlier, but this rebuilding effort in Marawi now just seems like it's going to stretch on for, for several years at, at an astronomical cost. And there's really not much certainty about the sequence of events or, or the trajectory that it's going to follow. Has the Philippine government started to move forward in a, in a meaningful way? So right now, the government is in the midst of cleaning up the most affected area. Uh, they've awarded that contract to a local company to clear the streets of debris, uh, what they want to do before they can get people uh, back to their homes so they can start rebuilding their homes is to widen some streets, build underground infrastructure, build public facilities. They want all that to be in place before they start allowing the residents to go back in and rebuild their homes. That work's underway. What's not clear is who's going to actually do the rebuilding of Marawi. It's not clear that the the Philippine government has has the money or the or is willing to spend what it's going to take to to get this job done. The government is committing funds to the rebuilding of Marawi. Um, rebuilding is going to have to require government funds, private donations, um, official official development assistance from international organizations as well. So, the finance secretary has said that for all of Marawi including the most affected area, uh, the government is going to have to pay 72.6 billion pesos until the year 2022. So there is a plan there to, to fund the rehabilitation of Marawi. How the money is going to be used, how it's going to be distributed, that's still all TBA. And as you say, while there is still this lingering uncertainty about how that money gets used, the people affected are effectively in limbo. They are, and that's what's frustrating the most. The family that we spoke to who are still living in the evacuation camp haven't been told when they can move into the temporary shelter. The government says, look, it takes us time to build these temporary shelters. We had to uh, identify land to build the shelters on, and then once that's done, then we've got to actually build the structures. But for the family which is still living in a tent, not having that certainty is frustrating. How much longer do we have to stay here? So you can imagine for them, all they want to do is go home. A lot of people told us that when they fled Marawi, they thought they'd be gone three to five days, a week at most. Here they are almost two years later, and they still can't go back. That's the most frustrating part. The government says they are doing their best. The military says they're doing their best. And they realize, look, maybe our best is not good enough for them, but this is all we've got at the moment. And I guess the... The dis- one of the more disturbing aspects of this is that a lot of these dis- displaced people are being overlooked. The world has forgotten about them a little bit. That's what they fear, because during the five months of battle, 
Marawi was all over the news. But because the fighting ended, because the government says the city is now liberated, the people in the temporary shelters say sometimes there is no food aid. Um, if When there is, it's not enough because we have these large families we have to feed. Some of the people I spoke to were very concerned. Please tell the world our story. Don't let them forget about us. We're suffering. One of the things that really struck me was these people know they need help. And they're so concerned that they're not getting it, that they are going to be overlooked because the news media moved on after the battle was over. Yeah, it's a, it's a vital story and it's one we'll continue to monitor. Thanks for your time today, Chu. Thank you, Tom. And now another story that propelled the Philippines into international headlines. You'll be hearing from Crystal Tai, who covered the recent controversy surrounding Miss Universe. When Miss Philippines contestant Katrina Gray won the contest last month, it prompted a backlash on social media and in turn prompted a ferocious debate about beauty standards in the Philippines and Asia more broadly. Welcome, Crystal. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And so you've written recently about the the, the controversial fallout from last month's Miss Universe pageant, where Miss Philippines, Katrina Gray, was named Miss Universe, and perhaps surprisingly, not all of the people in the Philippines were in a mood to celebrate. Around the time of Katrina Gray's win of, uh, you know, became, when she became the title holder of Miss Universe 2018, um, there was a lot of outcry and backlash on social media around her win, surrounding her win. And I remember at the time I Googled um, Miss Philippines beauty standards or Miss, just in general Miss Philippines on Twitter and all these tweets came up and they were just so upset and so angry. And most of them were in English, but um, a lot of people, you know, they were happy at the same time. They were proud that a Filipina had won Miss Universe and, and that this was the fourth time that, that the Philippines had won Miss Universe. But um, they were also pretty upset because they felt that her win was uh, celebrating uh, Eurocentric beauty standards. Um, I was speaking to a Filipino uh, Filipina friend that I know, and she mentioned that Filipino beauty standards are generally inclined towards foreign uh, ideals, such as you know being taller, having fair skin, slim, narrow noses, large eyes, these kinds of things. And she says that she said that they were all they could be traced back to the colonial eras of Spanish and American influence, um, which have that then trickled down into today's beauty standards as well. And so she said that a lot of beauty ideals currently in the Philippines are centered around being um, part Filipino, like they, they call it mestizo, so mixed Filipino and Caucasian, or mixed Filipino and Spanish, and that most of the Filipinos you see in mass media are usually of mixed descent. Is that because of her mixed heritage? What's her background that, that prompted them to have that, that sort of reaction? Yeah, so while many people were really happy about her win, they felt that Catriona Gray, being of half Scottish, half Filipina descent, uh, that she wasn't fully representative of you know, the Philippines as a country because a large percentage of the population in the Philippines, uh, they have like more indigenous features. They're fully Filipino, uh, fully as in they're not part Filipino, part European. Other, other, yeah, mm. European um, or other heritages. So I think that they were questioning whether 
she truly represented her country. By way of background a little bit, mm-hmm. Crystal, I understand that these beauty pageants are a big deal in the mm-hmm. Philippines. They're, they're wildly popular. Just wondering if you could give us a little bit of history about how they came to be so popular. And I think that might tell us a little bit about the reaction because people take them quite seriously. So basically, uh, the start of beauty pageant culture in the Philippines, modern beauty pageant culture, began with Santa Cruzon, which is a Spanish festival or fiesta that uh, began during the three centuries of Spanish occupation on on you know the island nation from 1521 until 1898. And so these fiestas were basically uh, ritual pageants that crowned the most beautiful woman in that area as the Virgin Mary or as um, other other religious figures such as Reina Elena, uh, otherwise known as Helena, Helena of Constantinople. And basically, you know, some people, some scholars or some experts, their theory is that because during this time when people were learning about uh, Christianity and the Virgin Mary, she was always depicted as a Caucasian woman. And so they, some people theorize that this has influenced, uh, you know, local pageant culture in the way that they look up to more Caucasian looking women as these kinds of, uh, ideals. Uh, yes. So former Miss Philippines universe or former Miss universe, Pia Wurzbach, she actually was one of the Reina Elena's before she won, like at a local festival, at a local Santa Cruz art, before she won the title of Miss Universe in 2015, which I find very interesting. And Pia is also, um, if I believe I'm correct, of half German and half Filipina descent. And then during American occupation of the Philippines in the 1800s until the mid-1900s, um, there was also a lot of influence on local beauty customs. So besides like Hollywood and jazz, there was also the Manila Carnival, which was an annual carnival event that they established. And each year, women were dressed in theme costumes, ranging from like Cleopatra to like uh, the princess from like Arabian Nights. And finally, a carnival queen was then crowned as the belle of the ball. And so... In the first year, I believe, like, of this carnival, two women who were who represented the ideals of Orientalism and Occidentalism, or like, you know, Eastern and Western ideals, were actually selected. But eventually, it just came down to one carnival queen, and each time she was the prettiest woman in the eyes of the judges, who were likely American. So that's interesting to hear that that history. And I mean, how do you think that then informed? the most recent controversy around Katrina Gray. What, what was it in particular that people were complaining about? When you look at the tweets that were being tweeted around that time, a lot of people were saying that all of this, um, her, her win is basically connected to the colonial legacy in that region in that Eurocentric standards are, are basically worshipped. And so, for example, um, if you look at what some of the people are saying on social media. So Pika Pia said, two Miss Universe winners from the Philippines both have mixed white ancestry. Happy for them, but what message does that send out about Filipino beauty? And how does this affect the way the world looks at Filipino beauty? Another user, Naden, 
said, when will the Philippines stop promoting white passing beauty as the only standard for beauty? Three of the four last Miss Universe Philippines were half white. And that's interesting because we've heard today previously about uh, the power of social media in the Philippines. I'm just wondering, how much of a Twitter storm did this turn out to be? Did, Did you see kind of a a critical mass occur online over this issue? I wouldn't say it was over the top, but people were were getting quite upset about it. But at the same time, they were very respectful. I think that most Filipinos who were tweeting about this incident, they did acknowledge that they were still proud of her, that they still wanted to celebrate their heritage and their nationality. But at the same time, um, they also wanted the world and, and Filipinos themselves to acknowledge that they were they are pandering to uh, Eurocentric norms that should not exist in 2018. It might seem unusual for a media organisation to profile another, but in this case, it's more than justified. Maria Reza is a Philippine publisher and journalist who's been one of the most prominent critics of President Rodrigo Duterte's brutal war on drugs. She attracted international attention at the end of last year, when she was named one of Time Magazine's People of the Year. But despite that international acclaim, her work in the Philippines is under threat like never before. And Megan Tobin, one of our reporters at the Asia Briefing, has not only been following Maria Reza's story, but managed to interview her on the day she surrendered herself to the Philippine authorities. Meg, maybe you could just explain why Maria Reza has become such an important figure. Sure, thanks. So uh, Maria Reza is the editor-in-chief of Rappler, uh, which is an online news site that was started in 2012 in the Philippines. And uh, they've become internationally well-known for their critical stance on uh, Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte's administration, and particularly the administration's um, tough war on drugs. And so they've covered really closely uh, the extrajudicial killings that have been involved in the war on drugs, and um, as well as the administration's use of social media to target uh, particularly journalists as well as any opponents of the administration. Um, And so she was recently abroad to receive some Press Freedom Awards. She received the 2018 Gwen Ifill Press Freedom Award at the Committee to Protect Journalists in New York. And uh, then basically right after that was indicted for tax evasion in the Philippines. On December 2nd, she flew back to the Philippines and the next morning turned herself in uh, to be arrested and posted bail later that afternoon. Um, And then we spoke on the phone. And these were on uh, tax evasion and tax fraud charges, which a lot of people feel are essentially politically motivated, trumped up. We should perhaps just flag those charges. Can you explain maybe the nature of them and and what Maria Reza said about them when you spoke to her. Sure. So the charges, uh, as I understand it, there are five cases of tax evasion being charged against Rappler right now. And they all basically stem from an investment um, by the Omid Yard Network into a particular securities vehicle that uh, in the Philippines that doesn't confer ownership, but um, the Philippines government has interpreted as um, Rappler having foreign ownership, which is against the law in the Philippines. And they've also classified, because of this investment, they've classified Rappler not as a news organization, but as a dealer in securities. And so they're actually being charged for for not filing the correct taxes for that kind of organization. And so those are the recent developments, but maybe if we could rewind a little bit and you could tell us a little bit about Maria Reza's background. 
um, where's she from? What's she been doing? Obviously, she's had a, a long career in journalism uh, before this. Could you maybe tell us how Maria Reza came to be in this situation in the first place? Sure. So Maria was born in the Philippines, and um, she moved to the United States when she was 10. And then uh, in the late 80s, uh, kind of during the people power movement, she decided to return to the Philippines. She got a Fulbright scholarship. And um, through that experience, she kind of realized she was really interested in reporting on what was going on there. And the way she characterizes it, she felt like the Philippines was putting itself together as a country. And she was really interested in being a part of that, um, which led to her to working for um, CNN as well as ABS-CBN, which is the largest news broadcaster in the Philippines. And then she had a, a fairly extensive career as a war correspondent and reporting on jihadi terrorist networks inside of the Philippines. She's written books about it. Um, and she kind of, the idea of her Rappler came out of that reporting, actually, because she was noticing the way that terrorist networks were using media to communicate. And she thought, why can't we use technology kind of for the good guys, if you will? Um, and so that's where the idea of her Rappler came from, was to kind of use technology and social media as a, a tool for community action, a tool for democratic social engagement in the Philippines. Violence against uh, journalists in the Philippines did not did not start with Duterte. Um, the Philippines has long been one of the most dangerous places in the world for, for journalists to work. I think in 2009, there was a, an infamous massacre where 58 people were killed, including 34 journalists. So uh, it has always been a, a hot environment for, for journalists. But I think what Maria Reza's example gets to is that this culture of impunity and the use of social media being weaponized against journalists has added a whole new element to that existing powder keg. What did Maria Reza have to say about about the, this weaponization of social media when you spoke to her? So actually all this time, uh, Reza and Rappler have been producing this series called the Impunity Series, and it's a multi-part series chronicling the extrajudicial killings happening in the drug war. Um, and the kind of culture of impunity is something that Reza sees as one of the primary issues arising from social media as a threat to democracy today. And in the course of all this happening, Reza and her team at Rappler have noticed that some of the accounts uh, kind of attacking their credibility or um, even just making violent threats against them are fake accounts uh, or can't be confirmed. Or in some cases, they have, you know, the profile picture of a a South Korean pop star, things like that. And so her team started scraping together this database of accounts which have uh, attacked them, attacked the press in general, are posting pro-Duterte messages or fake news on Facebook. And at this point, the uh, database actually contains uh, more than 12 million accounts. They call it the Shark Tank. And they're not totally sure how many of them are fake. And Maria Reza has actually brought the Shark Tank to Facebook on multiple occasions. To indicate that it's it's coordinated and that she's essentially assembled the uh, a data-driven approach to, to demonstrating to these tech companies what's going on on their platforms. Um, and in that, in that regard, she's one of the few people holding these big tech firms to account um, and speaking truth to power. Uh, on, on, on a second front, if you like. 
Absolutely. So Reza really says that, you know, the as much as her news outlet was really born on Facebook, that now, you know, it's Facebook's responsibility to do more about the spread of misinformation and fake accounts on attacks on journalists, this kind of thing. Reza has complained about the role of Facebook extensively. Facebook has 70 million users in the Philippines. They have an audience there that is entirely uh, dependent on social media to gather information, uh, to gather news about politics and Duterte himself. W- what has she said about uh, the role of, of social media in in uh, essentially corroding this public discourse? So she says that she's actually worried about uh, social media creating pancake people, people with no depth and no soul and, and no truth to them. And so she feels like, you know, in this time where there's kind of a global drift towards authoritarianism, towards more conservative politics, that social media is actually really aiding in that globally. And so it's not just a problem in the Philippines. It's a problem all across the world. And in fact, here's Maria Reza talking about that very subject while in Hong Kong. In India, in South Africa, in Mexico, it happens on Twitter, other countries, it happens on WhatsApp. Regardless of of its social media, this technology is now becoming a favorite of authoritarian rulers. It's a tool that's being used by dictators to be. The data we've collected from Facebook show that women bear the brunt of these attacks, many of them sexual. That's not the worst that, that I've gotten. They're aimed to strip us of our dignity and to bludgeon us into submission. That's what they want to do. So, we have to look for solutions, right? Um, in the long term, it's education. In the medium term, it's media literacy. In the short term, we have to do investigative journalism. We have to shine the light. And right now, since the new gatekeepers are no longer newsrooms, they're American tech companies, we turn to them to turn this upside down world right side up. So. We are actively working with Facebook. Uh, To my friends who are in Facebook, thank thank you for letting me speak. Um, And on on my friends in other social media platforms, I just ask you to move away from technological colonialism. I ran a bureau for an American network for almost 20 years. And sometimes when you're out here, you have no idea the impact of the policies that you put in place. Look at what is happening, not just in the Philippines where people are dying, but in Myanmar, in Cambodia, in Sri Lanka, in Vietnam. Remember that every day you do not act in the global south. It means people die. When power, money, and fear come together, it means that good journalism is bad business. My board told me that. So we're a startup. We hit positive EBITDA in 2016. About half the time it takes a traditional newsroom to do that. So we hit that, sorry, 2016, two years ago. But the government attacks that began mid-2016 brought Rappler to an existential moment. And we are determined to survive. And yet, we need your help in this one. Slingshot us through this valley of death because we're not moving away, even though it's a challenging climate, 
There is no better time to be a journalist in the Philippines than now. In fact, I would say there's no better time to be a journalist because we who are practicing now will determine where our craft and profession goes and where the state of democracy will go. Just picking up on that thread at the end of that audio, Meg, you spoke to her. What impression did you get from her? How, how does she now feel about those issues that we just heard her discussing? Well, you know, she's definitely uh, defiant about the charges um, and says that they're definitely going to fight the charges and they feel like they shouldn't even be tried in the court they're being tried in. But she also really was hopeful. And we talked about the role that technology and social media can, the potential of technology and social media for strengthening a democratic society. And she really still feels like, you know, that's the dream that started Rappler. And she said herself that she feels like that dream is still alive. Um, and that technology and social media can really be used to strengthen public discourse and to give people the information that they need, especially in a democracy with weakening institutions like the one she's working in, um, to kind of help arm people with information that they need to make good decisions. And of course, that's throwing forward with one eye to the next round of Philippine elections. Absolutely. And so Rappler actually now has a partnership with Facebook where they're fact-checking information that's shared on social media. But there are only a few employees, a a few reporters at Rappler who are doing this work. Um, And it feels pretty monumental when you think about the number of people and the amount of content that's being produced on Philippine social media every day. Meg, we'll definitely be following this story going forward. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Tom. You've been listening to the Asia Briefing. My name's Tom Starrick. You can follow our coverage on scmp.com. We're filing around the clock from around Asia and around the world. And don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.